0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, after days of searching, investigators in New South Wales find two bodies they believe are those of a couple allegedly murdered by a police officer. <laughs> Also, a judge in Queensland rules mandatory COVID vaccines breached the human rights of frontline workers. And the film Mary Poppins reclassified as a racist phrase forces a rethink.
2: It's even
3: Yeah, I
1: think this type of warning is, is
4: the way to go. It lets parents know what they're in for if their child watches this film.
1: For the first time, data showing the gender pay gap at some of Australia's best-known companies has been published and it reveals that, on average, men make nearly $20,000 a year more than women. The gap in earnings is being driven by the lack of women in highly paid roles and the new figures show which companies are the main offenders. This report from Rachel Hayter. It's an
3: injustice Australian women are sadly familiar with. The
1: majority of people on the
3: boards of these big companies are men and they should be having women on there. Most of the CEOs and that I think are male anyway, aren't they? The pay data of nearly 5,000 private employers published today thanks to new laws shows there's a significant under-representation of women in highly paid roles which means Australian women end up making, on average, 20% less than Australian men. There is a substantial problem in this country when you've got essentially two-thirds of businesses with a gender pay gap in favour of men. Minister for Women and Finance Katie Gallagher argues this fresh transparency will boost women's pay packets. This is about saying this is where you're
0: at. It's public. There'll be conversations about it and that will drive change. I have no doubt about it.
3: Companies with the biggest gaps tend to have mainly men in highly paid roles and women in lower-paying ones, like airline Jetstar, which has a pay gap of 53.5%. It means in that company, for every dollar a male worker makes a woman earns just 46 and a half cents. That's because the overwhelming majority of its pilots, who are highly paid, are men, and women are more likely to be flight attendants. The construction and financial and professional services industries also performed poorly. For every dollar a man earns, women might only earn less than 70 cents or 75 cents. It's quite a stark difference. But what we do see is the complexity in this situation, because every industry has uh, some with very high gender pay gaps, but some closer to zero. So it is doable. It's achievable. Mary Wooldridge is head of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, responsible for collating and publishing this data. She says such masculinised industries often have bias in recruitment, promotions and bonuses. What's created in a workplace that's really driving that differential about men being able to access that discretionary pay and women not being able to. Brewer Lion, which makes Forex, Tuis and Four Pillars Gin, has a gap on base payments of just 1.4%. But when you look at total remuneration, which includes those crucial bonuses, it's 8.4%. Sarah Abbott is the company's diversity, equity and inclusion leader. One thing we have done is remove primary and secondary carer labels from parental leave. This makes parental leave gender neutral,
5: further promoting men's ability to lean in to be a parent and women's ability to lean back into the workforce.
3: President of Chief Executive Women, Susan Lloyd Hurwitz, says gender-neutral carer leave policies can help reduce the time women take off work.
1: Australia has the highest educated female workforce in the OECD, but by the time we get to feeder roles for CEO positions, we're down to 20% of executives are women. So what happens to all those women along the journey of their careers. We are not harnessing the full potential of all of our workforce for the good of all.
3: She's also calling for the federal government to pay superannuation on paid parental leave. The federal Greens want the government to stop awarding grants and contracts to companies with big pay gaps. Senator Larissa Waters is the party's spokesperson on women. Why is the government subsidising discrimination by giving grants and contracts to big employers that don't pay their women fairly. So whilst the idea of today is that employers might be embarrassed into fixing their discrimination problem, that's not enough and we need government to step in. Meanwhile, the Deputy Liberal Leader and Shadow Minister for Women, Susan Lee, has rejected comments from Coalition colleague, National Senator Matt Canavan, who says the new data is useless and breeds division and resentment from some men.
1: Rachel Hayter reporting. The former Prime Minister Scott Morrison has bowed out of public life, delivering his final speech to Federal Parliament today. He's sat on the opposition backbenches since he led the coalition to defeat at the 2022 poll. He's now going to be taking up several international advisory roles. The valedictory speech was marked with emotion, with Mr Morrison speaking at length about his family and his Christian faith, as well as the the challenges he sees in Australia's future. Our National Affairs Editor, Melissa Clark, is at Parliament House in Canberra. Mel, Scott Morrison combined the personal with the political in his farewell speech. What did he say? Well, Scott Morrison was at times
0: emotional, particularly talking about his family, as you might expect, saying thank you to them and their support was a a key part of what he wanted to say as he farewelled Parliament today. But he was also emotional when he was talking about an incident from the 2022 election campaign where protective officers who were following him were injured in a car crash. So, you know, he he was with tears in his eyes at a number of points in this speech today. You know, at times he was self-deprecating. He he had a lot of people to thank and he, he joked that he wouldn't name some of them for risk of injuring their reputation by virtue of being connected with him. But uh, this being politics, he had some sharp political points to make in his valedictory speech as well, noting that uh, Australia's strong economic position allowed the country to respond to really the, uh, the un- unpredictable and unknowable scale of a, a challenge like the covid pandemic. He also outlined his concerns about secularism that this has been something of a running theme for him as a, a deeply religious pentecostal man. He he warned of the risk of society drifting off into a valueless void. And thirdly, and I think crucially, he talked about China's aggression. As prime minister, he initiated and secured the AUKUS agreement with the US and the UK as a bulwark against Beijing, and he used this speech to warn the parliament not to drop its guard against China.
6: 2022 election may have provided an opportunity for Beijing to step back from their failed attempts at coercion, but we must not be deluded. Tactics change, but their strategy remains the same. We're not alone in waking up to this threat. Investors are now rightly pricing the risk of their investments in an authoritative Communist China, while consumer advocates are waking up to human rights abuses and environmental degradation that infects these supply chains. This requires continued vigilance and the connection between all spheres of policy to create and protect supply chains, integrate and align our strategic and military capabilities so we can protect our sovereignty and counter the threat that is real and building.
1: And Mil, both the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese and the Opposition Leader, Peter Dutton, have had differences with Mr Morrison, over the years, how did they pay tribute to his public life? Look, they both gave gracious tributes to Scott
0: Morrison, as you would expect in this circumstance. This is a a farewell for him. Uh, The Prime Minister was gracious. Uh, It's the traditional approach. He he did seem to sort of struggle to find a a positive policy uh, to point to, to congratulate him on uh, achieving, given the the various policy battles the Coalition and uh, the Labor Party have had over the years. But, look, he did describe Scott Morrison as a, a formidable opponent, as someone committed to his beliefs and acknowledged the difficulties of leading through the COVID pandemic. Uh, likewise for Peter Dutton, having been on the losing side of a leadership contest with Scott Morrison, he offered kind words describing the AUKUS agreement as, as a crowning achievement of Morrison's time as Prime Minister and defending his public displays of his Christianity.
1: And Scott Morrison was the last Liberal Prime Minister, of course, in three terms of coalition government. What's your view, Mel, on the, of the state Mr Morrison left the coalition in and and what it'll take for for Peter Dutton to get them back into power. Look, in the immediate aftermath of the 2022 electoral loss,
0: uh, there's been a focus of the Liberal Party to try and put a bit of distance between themselves and Scott Morrison. His political baggage from his conduct through the bushfires, some aspects of his management of the COVID pandemic, uh, particularly the secret ministries, his, his approach to women, these factors have not helped the Liberals post that loss. But look, the approach that Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party took continues as it did under him, it does under Peter Dutton. It's hawkish on China. It's willing to engage in cultural battles. Uh, The growth of the conservative position at the expense of small L liberal views within the party, these are trends that are continuing. And that suggests that there's not really much of a recalibration following the 2022 election loss by Scott Morrison. For the Liberal Party, it's really just a change of personnel in the top.
1: Our National Affairs Editor, Melissa Clark, at Parliament House in Canberra. There's been a breakthrough in the investigation of the alleged murders of Sydney couple Luke Davies and Jessie Baird. Police have recovered two bodies from a property in rural New South Wales. The discovery at Bungonia in the southern Tablelands comes nearly a week after police started searching for the men. Our reporter Gavin Coote joins me now with the latest. Gav, what have police said about this discovery at Bungonia?
7: Well, Sam, this is a huge development in this investigation that's captured attention both across Australia and around the world. Police say they've found two bodies after they established a crime scene at a second rural property at Bungonia. Now, that's in the New South Wales Southern Tablelands near the regional city of Goulburn, about two hours southwest of Sydney. That's a separate property from the one the police had been searching in the same region yesterday. Now, senior constable Bo Lamar Condon has been charged with the murder of Jesse Baird and Luke Davies, which police have alleged happened last Monday at Mr Baird's home at Paddington in Sydney's east. After a nearly week-long search to find their bodies, the breakthrough came this afternoon. Here's Detective Superintendent Daniel Doherty.
8: It's obviously a mixed emotion
5: uh, for the family. It's a very sad day for them. And we pass our condolences on to the Davies and Baird family. Um, They have been informed by the investigators in relation to uh, the location.
1: And Gavin, this alleged crime is having an impact on this Saturday night Sydney Mardi Gras and the involvement of police in the parade. I know the, the Commissioner met with members of the Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Board today. What's happening there?
7: Well, members of the New South Wales Police Force have long been actively involved in the Mardi Gras parade, but the organisers withdrew their invitation for police to march in the event this Saturday. The Mardi Gras board says it doesn't take that decision lightly, but it argues that police participation at the annual event could cause distress in the LGBTQIA community. Now, some, including the New South Wales Premier Chris Minns of today, said that's a regrettable decision. They're hoping it's reversed while others are backing in the board's decision. Former Mardi Gras board director Charlie Murphy says there's been long-standing opposition within the queer community to police involvement in the parade.
9: Cops marching in Mardi Gras is salt on open wounds. The SACA special inquiry into LGBTQ hate crimes found that there is shameful homophobia, transphobia and prejudice within the New South Wales police and made 19 recommendations regarding police conduct. None of these have been implemented.
7: Organisers have acknowledged that some police officers are also members of the LGBTQIA community. But in a statement, they say recent events have left many questioning whether the parade can still be a, quote, space to protest, celebrate and advocate for equality, as well as to honour and grieve for those we've lost. Dr Justin Ellis, who's a lecturer in criminology at the Newcastle School of Law and Justice, points out there is an often fraught relationship between Mardi Gras participants and police.
6: We can go back to the origins of the first Mardi Gras in 1978. So that ended with 53 arrests and and police brutality, but also the publishing of the names of those 53 people, their addresses and their professions in the Sydney Morning Herald. So that was an inauspicious start. But then uh, in the 80s, the police did introduce gay and lesbian liaison officer programs as part of a, a suite of diversity programs and so that it would better reflect police relations with a whole range of different communities. By the late 90s, we have the police starting to march in the parade. So that's just over, what, well, two decades ago. But I think that other issues that remain sticking points, uh, the use of drug detection dogs, for example, uh, and I think the other the other big thing that's come out in recent times at the end of 2023 was the recommendations from the Special Commission of Inquiry into police the police investigation of LGBTIQ. Hate crimes between 1970 and 2010 in New South Wales. So, and that, which was not particularly complimentary in the way that the police handled many of those cases. So, what we're seeing here is a confluence of events. So, I think that that you know we can see how complex this this current situation is. So, we've reached I think a a tipping point in terms of needing to recalibrate uh, police community relations.
7: Others want the parade to remain welcoming for all members of the queer community. Jackie Munro is an LGBTQI woman and New South Wales Liberal MP.
0: I've marched eight times in the parade, I believe so far, all with the Liberal Party. And I'm really proud to be a part of that float because I want to represent, again, the diversity of the LGBTQI plus community because... It's very easy to be in spaces where we all agree with each other all the time but what is critical to progress is making sure we're celebrating the full diversity of the queer community.
7: Police Commissioner Karen Webb says she had fruitful talks after meeting with members of the Mardi Gras board today. While she says they're still in discussions, one of the options being considered is whether police could march without their uniforms. And
3: obviously I haven't ruled it out either and those decisions, as as the commissioner, I can make those decisions and I will talk with both the uh, corporate sponsor and uh, some of those officers to see how they feel. And they're, like like a lot of us, we've all been rocked and um, there's some positives that could come out of Participating in Mardi Gras Saturday on Saturday, but we're really it's early days, and we've got a few days left yet to work through this with Mardi Gras.
1: The New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb. That report from Gavin Coote. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Just a reminder, you can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, a racist phrase forces a classification change for the beloved film Mary Poppins. Accusations of price gouging have again been levelled at Coles after the supermarket giant revealed another bumper profit. Its earnings were $589 million for the six months to the end of December, down 8.4% on the same period a year ago. Analysts say the difference between its sticker prices and what it pays suppliers for those products shows the grocery store is adding to the financial struggles of millions of households. But is that fair? Here's David Taylor.
2: Supermarket giant Coles has again made hundreds of millions of dollars selling groceries. CEO Leah Weckett, speaking at the profit announcement, says profit is necessary to run the business well.
10: Our profits, which are around $2.60 for every $100 spent by customers, or less than three cents on the dollar, they allow us to continue to invest in our business and deliver for our stakeholders whether they are our customers, suppliers, team members, community partners or shareholders. We are working hard to deliver good outcomes across the board.
2: Investors cheered the result, sending the share price up sharply. But Leah Weckett also conceded Cole's other big stakeholder, its customers, were not cheering.
10: For groceries, nearly all customers said they were taking active steps to budget on their food bill. They continue to seek more specials, seek loyalty offers, and use catalogues and apps to help manage their grocery costs. They are making more home-cooked meals, cooking in batches, and weekly meal planning to help stretch their budgets further.
2: The key question is whether Coles is helping or hurting household budgets by price gouging. Jim Stanford is an economist with the progressive think tank The Australia Institute.
8: Well, price gouging is a loaded term, David, but there's no doubt that the company is making more than it needs to just to cover its own input costs. And both the volume of their profits and the rate of profits that they're earning have increased since the pandemic. So uh, profit taking by Coles has certainly contributed to food price inflation in Australia.
2: But chief investment officer at investment research firm, The Motley Fool, Scott Phillips, argues Coles isn't doing anything wrong.
8: I don't think there's obvious evidence there is wide-scale price gouging or their margins are unreasonable. And maybe more importantly, even if they were reduced, I'm not sure the size of the prize per person per Australian
2: is really that big. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that their profit goes to nothing. Is a profit of nothing okay in the Australian economy for coals to be bearing?
8: At the end of the day, any business wants a return on the capital that's being employed to produce the, the goods and services that we want. If you're if you're a business person and you're saying, well, I'm investing however many millions, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of assets are involved in, in propping up the coal operation, the warehouses and the stores and the staff and the shelving and all that kind of stuff, you want to get some sort of return for that investment. Otherwise, you'd say, well, I'll take my money and go and do something else with it. And so at one level, we don't want them making so much money the rest of the country is poorer as a result on the other hand we do want enough of an incentive for these guys to actually stay in business and do something
2: for us jim stanford disagrees
8: no one has to
2: earn a 30 percent profit
8: rate on a business that's relatively low risk and very predictable so uh these company profits do not have to be as high as they are i'd like to see some of it taxed back in the form of excess profits taxes that are then redistributed to consumers to help pay for those groceries. And I'd like to see parts of the industry, if necessary, uh, broken up and sold off to other companies that will be more aggressive in competing to try to bring prices down.
2: Cole's share price closed the trading day up over 5% on the stock exchange.
1: David Taylor reporting to Queensland now where the Supreme Court has found mandating COVID-19 vaccines for some frontline workers was unlawful on human rights grounds. Dozens of Queensland police and ambulance workers were in court today to hear the decision. This report from Elizabeth Cramsey. (laughs) Dozens of frontline workers celebrate
10: the ruling by Justice Glenn Martin. Director of Sibley Lawyers, Justin Sibley, represented some of the group.
5: The decision is that the directions were unlawful, and that's the main thing, so that's an excellent outcome for us and for these guys and uh, the state and all other police and nurses, doctors, everyone that was coerced in this state at that time.
10: Three cases were before the Supreme Court. Two brought by police officers and a third by Queensland Ambulance staff. The groups were testing the legality of the mandate on grounds of the Judicial Review Act and the Human Rights Act. Justice Glenn Martin found the applicants hadn't established any ground under the Judicial Review Act of unreasonableness. But when considering the Human Rights Act, Justice Martin found the mandate breached Section 58, which states all public service employees must give proper consideration to human rights before making a decision. Bill Potts is the former president of the Queensland Law Society.
5: What this decision is simply saying is that uh, employers such as the police commissioner, ambulance commissioners, uh, various inspector generals have an obligation not to act upon inferences that may be made in their employment contracts, but to have specific terms within the contract. So if they wish to mandate Vaccines will mandate, indeed, anything for employers, they have to contract with them openly and clearly.
10: He says it's important to look at the difference between contracts of service and contracts of employment. While businesses can put obligations on their patrons, they can't necessarily put those same restrictions on their employees.
5: Provided they don't discriminate, uh, they can effectively put uh, upon people who enter a store uh, obligations. It's not the same with employment. Uh, and I think it's a a, a very strong a warning to uh, all employers uh, that if they're going to impose conditions upon their employees, but they must first consider whether they have the power to do so and whether the requirement uh, to uh, to do so, in fact, is having proper regard to the human rights of each of the individuals.
10: And he says after today's ruling, other states and territories will be looking to Queensland.
5: To see how it uh, interrelates to their own legislation uh, and uh, the exercise of the uh, powers uh, of such people as their own police commissioners, uh, public service commissioners and the like. So yes, I think it's going to have broader implications, but the law here is a state-based law. It will have a massive impact upon Queensland, but not necessarily a massive impact upon the rest of the country.
10: It's worth noting that arguments were also made about Section 17, which says people should not be subjected to medical treatment without full, free and informed consent. But it was ruled that this human rights limit was reasonable given the circumstances. So what implications could this decision have on other vaccine rollouts? Dr. Jess Kaufman is a senior research fellow at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne. She says it will be interesting to see how this ruling might affect no jab, no pay or no jab, no play policies, which see parents receive subsidies for getting their kids vaccinated. I don't imagine they would have direct implications for a federal policy or for a policy in a different state, Um, but it's certainly something that I think people will be watching very closely because I know there have been you know, uh, court cases against uh, many of the different policies over the
1: years. Dr Jess Kaufman, that report from Elizabeth Cramsey. Well, for nearly 60 years, the film Mary Poppins has taught children that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down Always trust chimney sweeps and be wary of banks. But in Britain, the Oscar-winning family classic has been under scrutiny for using a racist term and its program classification has been changed to parental guidance recommended. Angus Randall reports.
9: There are many unforgettable moments from Mary Poppins, the film that won five Oscars and launched the movie career of Julie Andrews.
8: Of sugar helps the go down.
9: But one you might not remember is causing controversy in the UK. The British Board of Film Classification has given the film a stricter rating because it uses a racist term for Southern Africans when describing the soot-faced chimney sweeps. It's now rated PG, or parental guidance, encouraging parents to consider whether the film will upset younger children. Given it's virtually never used these days, you've probably never heard about this term's racist history, but it's considered offensive. Dr Michelle Smith is an associate professor in literary studies at Monash University.
4: In the Victorian period, they stole some women from Africa and exhibited them as the hot and tot Venus. So, like, this this idea of black women looked a certain way and that it was something to marvel at and, um, you know, so strange and they very sexualized. So I think that word hot and tot in Britain might also have a bit more meaning and be a bit more known uh, and associated with racism, potentially.
9: The British Board of Film Classification has a history of reassessing classic films. Rocky, The Empire Strikes Back and Flash Gordon have all been given stricter ratings in recent years, while Monty Python's Life of Brian had its rating downgraded, allowing younger children to learn about Judean rebellion and Roman naming convention.
8: I have a very great friend in Rome called Biggest Dickers.
9: Last year, Ian Fleming's James Bond novels were edited to remove some of the more racist language, along with a disclaimer explaining why changes have been made to the original text. And Roald Dahl's books for children have also been reworked to fit modern sensibilities. Dr Michelle Smith says when it comes to Mary Poppins, there's a precedent for reassessing what's acceptable.
4: The interesting thing about Mary Poppins is that P.L. Travers actually rewrote uh, or deleted a section of the book from its original public. So I think it was called The Bad Tuesday Chapter, presented some uh, descriptions of characters from different racial backgrounds that were subsequently seen as offensive. So Travers herself went and re-edited the book to remove that chapter or permitted that change to occur.
9: In Mary Poppins' case, the film is unchanged. The British reclassification is just providing a bit more guidance to parents Dr Michelle Smith says this light touch strikes the right balance.
4: Yeah, I think this type of um, warning is is the way to go. It lets parents know what they're in for if their child watches this film and if they want to explain this concept or explain how things were historically, then they can. It's just about equipping parents with knowing what surprise might be coming in terms of the language used and whether they want to get into that discussion and also being mindful of the audience that there are a lot of kids of colour and parents of colour watching these films and maybe you don't want to come across a racial slur um, when you're just watching your Sunday night movie.
9: Can we expect this to be happening more often as these pieces of art are reassessed?
4: Look, I think it will definitely happen more often, particularly in relation to children's books and films, because traditionally, as children's books have dated and fallen out of favour, we just have stopped reading them and viewing and them. But we're now getting to the point where so many canonical works produced by Disney or Roald Dahl are still making money for the companies that publish them or distribute them. So they want to keep these texts and stories alive but they were produced in the 50s, the 60s eras where ideas about the world were quite different Let's go fly a kite up
9: In Australia the film is still rated G for all ages
4: Let's go
9: fly a kite and send it
1: Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan we'll be back at the same time tomorrow Good night
3: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. We've probably all experienced a less than desirable ride on public transport, but for people with a disability, every day can be an absolute horror show. Today we bring you an ABC investigation into how millions of Australians are being let down by our public transport networks. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.